Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are in Proverbs 22 tonight. Now, this is just a reminder. Next week, we will not be here on Wednesday night, owing to the Embracing the Truth conference that is taking place up in Gladeville, Tennessee. So if any of you do show up here next week, that's on you, because we've been saying for a couple of weeks that we're not going to be here. If it's Wednesday night and you feel like coming to church, come out to Gladeville. Come join us out there. In chapter 22 of Proverbs, we are reaching the end of this first large section of the book of Proverbs. In fact, chapter 25 is the beginning of the next much shorter section of the book of Proverbs, the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. One of the ways that we know that we're coming toward the end of this section is that in verse 17 of chapter 22, suddenly the literary style that we've gotten used to over the last couple of months is going to change rather dramatically. And instead of short couplets, we're going to go back to what we saw at the beginning of the book, larger statements about the value of wisdom and Solomon saying that he is instructing his son and beckoning to his son to pay attention to the wisdom of his mother and father. So starting at chapter 22, verse 17, we find what is actually an inclusio that is just so large that it's sort of easy to lose it in the midst of all the proverbs in between the beginning and end of the occlusio. An inclusio is a literary device where you say something at the beginning and end of any section of literature so that you are basically driving home the point. I'm going to tell you this. And then you tell them that, and then you wrap up by saying, I just told you this. It'd be like if I said, it was a beautiful summer day, and then I went about describing it. The kids were out playing. The sun was shining. There wasn't a drop of rain in the sky. The wind was blowing softly. The gentle breezes of the summer, everyone was enjoying it with their hula hoops and roller skates. It was a beautiful summer day. Well, that would be an inclusio. Well, that's essentially what Solomon has done here. And starting at chapter 22, verse 17, he's going to form the last part of that inclusio. So just to help you kind of get a sense of what I'm saying, go back to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1 starts, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, to give knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning 
and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments around your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We shall find all sorts of precious wealth. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse or one treasure will break up between us. Well, if that all happens, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. For their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the net in the eyes of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood and they ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O oh naive ones, will you love simplicity? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing. And fools hate knowledge. In other words, how long will you naive ones love your simplicity? How long will you scoffers delight in your scoffing? How long will you fools hate knowledge? Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you and I will make my words known to you. Go to chapter 22, verse 17. In wrapping up everything that we've been reading in all these intervening passages, all these middle chapters and verses, Solomon returns to incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to my knowledge. For it will be pleasant or beneficial if you keep them within you, that they may be ready on your lips so that your trust may be in the Lord. I have taught you today even you. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge to make you know the certainty of the words of truth that you may correctly answer to him who sent you? And then he goes into a series of do nots. And those summary statements take up the balance of chapter 22, 23, 24. So Solomon has formed in a very large sweeping sense this inclusio that I keep talking about. He began by saying, pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. And then he told us a whole bunch of Proverbs in order to increase wisdom in those Proverbs. We've seen those themes that he described at the beginning of the book. We've seen him over and over talk about the wisdom of the wise, the foolishness of fools, the scoffers, not to throw in with the scoffers. He's going to bring that up again. And then he winds up by saying, now incline your ear and hear the words that I've given you. Apply your mind to knowledge. Understand the things that I have taught you because I've taken the time to give you the wisdom 
that I taught you today, even you. So now that we understand the literary layout of what is going on, and I do think, by the way, that that big section and the way it is laid out would be more obvious to somebody reading this book in Hebrew because they would not have seen the chapter and verse divisions. So they wouldn't have that sense that these things were divided up. Instead, what they would have seen was Solomon introducing this section, saying, pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. And then there's a whole series of Proverbs that conclude with, now pay attention to what I just told you. So that's how the structure is being developed now. But we are at chapter 22, verse 1, so that we can wrap up the individual Proverbs. Now, if I were laying out the chapter and verse divisions, I would still be considering these verses to be part of chapter 21. I wouldn't have broken into chapter 22 until verse 17, because there is an actual literary change at that point. So some kind of demarcation of that, like a chapter division, would have been helpful. But instead, this chapter just gets broken up right in the middle. So chapter 22, verse 1, we looked at last week. It says, a good name is to be more desired than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. We talked about it last week, so we'll just review it real quickly. When he says a good name, he means a good reputation for people to speak well of you, for people to trust you, to be able to know that you have honesty, that you are a trustworthy person, that they can confide in you, that they can loan to you, and that you will pay back. All of those characteristics are the characteristics that Solomon has described as a wise and a knowledgeable person who believes in the truth and who has the fear of God. And if that's the kind of person you are and that's the kind of reputation you have, that's better than having wealth. You can have a lot of wealth and be a bad guy and people are not going to like you, nor is it going to end well for you ultimately. So therefore, having the reputation of being a person of knowledge and wisdom is actually more valuable than wealth. And Solomon says, we saw it last week, we'll see it again tonight in just a moment. Solomon says that having that good reputation, having that wisdom, having that knowledge, conducting your life in a wise and suitable way will result in the riches of this life. That benefits come your way in this life as a result of the fact that you are an intelligent, trustworthy person. So it starts with be intelligent and trustworthy, then God will give you whatever he's going to give you in this lifetime, but you're going to do better in this lifetime if you are walking honestly and trustworthy before people and have a good name. If you are evil, if you are a scoffer, if you are cheating people, then so what if you get gold and silver, your reputation and your morality are corrupt. Verse 2 then says, the rich and the poor have a common bond. Now, all the way through the book of Proverbs, we have seen Solomon repeatedly contrasting the rich and the poor. And usually he's telling the rich not to take advantage of the poor. Usually he's telling the rich that even though they have the advantages in life, that they're not to look down on the poor. Now he's going to give you the reason and the rationale 
why that's true. Because the rich and the poor have one thing in common. They have one common bond, which is the Lord is the maker of them all. So in the largest picture, what Solomon is saying is if you're dealing with another person who is made in the image of God, then don't start thinking that you're better than them. The one thing you have in common is that you all are going to respond one day. You're all going to be judged by, you're all going to give account for your life. You're all going to have to deal with the judge of the universe. And you were all made by God. So then you all, rich or poor, belong to God. You are his creation. He can do what he wants with you. So don't start thinking that your wealth or your status in society is your doing. Recognize that it is God who makes all things, who establishes all things, who decides all things. And he decided to give you what he gave you in the hope that you would then be a benefit to other people who had less than you. So let's look at some other things in this very chapter where Solomon drives home this point. Remember, the rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. But go down to verse 7, and now Solomon describes the reality of life within society and says the rich rule over the poor. In other words, they dominate the poor, and the borrower becomes a lender's slave. In other words, if a poor man, in his desperation, borrows some money from a rich man, the rich man will end up lording it over the poor man and will say, hey, you owe me. Therefore, as long as you're in my debt, you're going to do whatever I say, whatever my expectation is. I'm going to rule over you. This is one of the reasons that Solomon is against the idea of borrowing on usury. He thinks that if you help somebody, that you ought to help them out of goodness, out of kindness. You ought to give to the poor. You ought to share with the poor, not lend to the poor so that you can control them. Look at verse 9. He who is generous will be blessed for he gives some of his food to the poor. So that's the very thing I was just describing, that those who have the goods of this life ought to be willing to share those things with the poor because not so that you can lord it over them, not so that you can have mastery over them or they can be your slave, but so that you yourself will get the blessing from God. God who gave you what you have knows what you do with what you have. And if you are generous with what you have and you help those that you can help with what you have, God then will bless you. And those blessings can be material blessings. Those blessings can be eternal blessings and spiritual blessings. That can be the blessing of God giving you greater understanding, knowledge, wisdom. It can also be the blessing of giving you more physical stuff because you're being generous with your physical stuff and he's utilizing you as the conduit to get stuff to the poor. So then from there, look at verse 16. And he who oppresses the poor to make much for himself, in other words, if you have the riches of this world and you don't share it with the poor and you don't lend to the poor, then you oppress the poor 
For what reason? To heap stuff to yourself. You're greedy. I got stuff. It's my stuff. I'm not going to give it to you even though you need it. He who oppresses the poor to make much for himself or who only gives to the rich so that he knows he's going to get it back. He knows that the money is safe. Whatever he lends to the rich, he's going to get it back. Or he's going to get some favor, some political favor. If that's what you do, you oppress the poor so that you can be greedy for yourself or you only give to those who you know can pay you back, well, the end result is you will only come to poverty. So let's put those ideas all together. Don't oppress the poor because you're greedy or just give to the rich because that's going to bring you to poverty. If you're generous with the poor, then you're going to be blessed because the generous person gives some of his food to the poor. The rich typically try to rule over or dominate the poor and the borrowing poor end up become the lender's slaves But the truth is the rich and the poor have a common bond, which is the Lord is the maker of them all, which means ultimately you're going to have to answer to God for the things that he gave you and the way that you dealt with the poor that were around you. Were you kind and generous or did you oppress them? Did you enslave them? Did you take advantage of them? And was that driven by your self-greed or was your generosity driven by the fact that you saw in them the image of God, that God himself is the maker of you and them. That then takes us to verse 3. The prudent sees the evil and hides himself. What that means is a smart person, a prudent person, a thinking person, a discerning person, someone who's paying attention, when they see evil breaking out around them, Rather than join in, they get away from it. They hide themselves. They make themselves scarce. They go away from wherever the evil is. But the naive, the opposite of the prudent, the prudent or the wise in thinking, the naive or the non-thinking, the naive will go on toward the evil, and then they're punished for it. So... Solomon, as the king, who is the judge in Israel, he's the one who has to judge the people who are committing evil within the society. And so he knows the difference between those who see the evil and run toward it and get involved in it, and those who see the evil and make themselves scarce. And he's saying it's better to get scarce. It's better to go away from the evil. Whatever the evil is that's breaking out around you, don't become part of it. Don't partake in it because ultimately you're going to be punished. If you're not punished by the civil magistrates, you're ultimately going to be punished by God. Evil is always ultimately punished. So the prudent sees the evil and he hides himself. But the naive go on and then they're punished for it. Verse 4. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord. Where did we begin? At the very beginning, chapter 1, Solomon told us what the beginning of wisdom was. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So 
So now there is a reward for that, the reward of humility and fear of the Lord. By the way, those two things are inextricably combined with one another. If you don't have a genuine reverence, which is what the word fear there means, it doesn't mean slavish fear. It doesn't mean you're quaking and you're in constant fear of God. What it means is that you recognize that he is the ultimate sovereign king and you are you, and therefore you reverence him. You know that he's the judge of the universe, so therefore you have an appropriate fear before him because he is the one who can cast you into outer darkness. So it would be appropriate to revere that one, to worship that one. And that kind of genuine fear of the Lord, genuine knowledge of who God is, will drive you to humility. It is impossible to keep that perspective of God, the correct perspective of God, and be full of ego. Because those two ideas run completely contrary to each other. If you love yourself so much that you are fully satisfied with you, you're not going to revere God. If you fully revere God, if you fear and understand God and the judgment of God, then you can't be full of yourself. You just can't. Because you're going to realize that you are completely dependent on him and you're going to be getting down on your face in front of him saying, forgive me because I'm me. I'm full of me-ness. I'm full of sin. I'm full of my own evil thoughts. I'm full of my own depravity. So the fear of God will drive out the ego and will produce genuine humility in a person. Whenever you see then a proud person, an arrogant person, somebody who's full of themselves, you can presume, and you'll be right pretty much all the time, You'll be right that that egocentric person has no genuine understanding, fear, worship of God. They may go to church, they may pretend, but if they're still completely self-involved, then they're not genuinely God-involved. One or the other. So the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. So in Solomon's thinking, if you are, through your greed, constantly trying to accumulate things to yourself, and if you're doing that by wickedness and chicanery, if you're taking advantage of people in order to accomplish it, then once you've accumulated all that, you're still evil and wicked and still going to be judged. So really, what good did all your money get you? But if you're humble and fear God... Solomon believes that you're also then going to receive the things you need in this life, whether that is a good reputation and honor, or whether it is life itself, that is life here and everlasting life, or even the riches that are necessary for you in this life. David said, I am old and I have been young, a verse that I love even more these more recent days. But one thing he says is, I have been young and now I'm old and I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor the seed begging bread. And that phrase, nor the seed begging bread, means that God provided for the seed what they needed every single day for all of David's life. And if that is true, then you can look back over the course of your life. I can look back over the course of my life. And 
I never missed a meal without meaning to. I always had a car to drive. There was always at least one car in the driveway. I've always had a roof over my head. And under the worst of circumstances, I mean the worst of circumstances, when everything blew up, I had friends and family I could call. I was always protected. I was always taken care of. Well, that is God's doing. And Solomon says, that's what's going to happen to you if you begin with the proper fear of God, the proper reverence of God. That will drive you to a proper humility, but also then fearing, reverencing, recognizing, acknowledging God in all your ways. God will then provide for you the things you need here and now, whether that's honor, whether that's food, whether that's life, whether that's the riches of this world. He will provide it for you because that's the reward of the fear of the Lord. Verse 5 then says, Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. On the opposite side, he who guards himself will be far from them. The them is a reference to the thorns and snares. So basically what Solomon is saying is, The way of the perverse is not easy. You have to actually put the effort in to be genuinely perverse, to follow after evil. There are going to be all these things in your way that should make you realize that this is not the proper path in life. And yet, because you see the goal, whether that's riches, whether that's taking advantage of other people, whether that's satisfying your own ego or your own greed, despite the difficulties in your way, you'll plow through them, whatever the difficulties are, to get to that greedy end. So there are thorns and there are snares that are in the way of the perverse, in the pathway of the perverse people. The opposite of the perverse people are those who guard themselves. What he means by guarding yourself is paying attention to God, to his statutes, to his laws, to his ways of behaving, staying on the right path, you're then going to keep yourself from the thorns and the snares that are going to constantly be stabbing at the perverse in this lifetime. So I have used the phrase through the years that it's better to just accept God's sovereignty and understand who he is and then Comport yourself, if that is in fact a verb. Bring yourself into alignment with God's sovereignty. Understand that that's what it is and walk accordingly. That is easier than constantly banging your head against the unmoving brick wall of God's sovereignty. And I have seen people deny God and then do that very thing have difficult lives, constantly banging their head against the brick wall of the fact that God is in charge of this life and that he's not going to let anybody else rule it. And people who are self-willed, self-ruled, who are greedy, who who are evil, those people are going to have a tough time. And so I say again, you know what? It's not only beneficial spiritually and eternally and even in this life beneficial to do it God's way. It's also just easier Because God doesn't have to teach you the really hard lessons if you just go ahead and stay in his path. Whom he loves, he chastens. 
And the chastening is never fun. The writer of Hebrews admits that. So if you don't want to get chastened, well, then stay in the path. Don't need the correction. So whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, whether it's Solomon or the writer of Hebrews, the truth is walking in the paths of righteousness is ultimately beneficial to you in the life to come and in this life now. It's better to walk in the blessings of God than walking contrary to the will of God and the sovereignty of God. Make sense? Okay. Now, by the way, because I am a theology wonk, I know I just said it's better than walking against the will of God. And I don't believe that anybody is ever outside the will of God. And somebody on the internet at this very moment is typing to me saying, hey, wait a minute. How do you get outside the will of God? I don't believe you can get out of the will of God. But I think you know what I was saying. But I acknowledge my choice of words. Stop typing. The Puritans said you can view the will of God in two ways. The decretive will, which nobody ever violates, and the preceptive will, Mm -hmm. which is his law that we violate every day. So, yeah, we can be outside the will of God in that sense. So then they really need to stop typing. Yeah, they do. Yeah, just back off me, man. (laughs) Just get up off me. Verse 6. Verse 6 has a certain amount of built-in controversy, but I hope that I can unravel the controversy for you tonight. Verse 6 says, train up a child in the way that he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And yet, there are good God-fearing parents who have raised up their children in the way that they felt their children should go, and then those children have rebelled. Okay, so if real life can so obviously run opposite of what the Word of God says, then one of two things is true. Either the Word of God isn't accurate, or we have misunderstood the Word of God and given the wrong application to it. I believe that most people who read this particular proverb and who quote this proverb have just given it the wrong application. Because I don't think the emphasis in this verse is on when they're grown up, which is really all the word means. It means when they are an adult, they will not depart from it. That's where people seem to place all the emphasis. But the emphasis in Solomon's mind is on parents to tell parents To train up their children. Train up your child in the way that he should go. Why do I say this? Go look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Can I get an amen? Amen. I didn't hear the parents in the back. (laughs) Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. So children are inherently foolish by virtue of the fact that they just don't know anything yet. They are completely egocentric. They want what they want when they want it. Can I get a witness? And that kind of foolishness is driven from them when you correct them. Here we see the rod of discipline Solomon seems to be an advocate of corporal punishment. 
He has mentioned this a couple of times, spare the rod, spoil the child. But the idea is the way that you drive that foolishness out of a child and teach him the right way to go is through discipline. And by disciplining a child, which means telling them no, correcting their way, saying you're not going that way, you're going this way, that process of correcting them will drive their self-willed foolishness out of them, make them recognize that your will is the will that's actually going to come to fruition, not their own will, which will ultimately help them to understand and recognize that God exists and that it's God's will that's going to be done and not their own will. They're going to stop rebelling against all of the authority figures in their life if they are properly raised, properly disciplined. They'll understand that there are authorities over them. So since Solomon has established that foolishness is in a child and that you have to discipline a child in order to drive that foolishness out of them, I think that's the way that you read verse 6, that you need to train up a child in the way that he should go. Now, interestingly, the word train up right there is used several times in the Old Testament. It's a fairly common Hebrew word. But this is the only place where it's translated train up. Every place else that you see it in the Old Testament, it has to do with dedicate or to set something aside or even to hedge something in. Uh, For instance, it's the word that's used to dedicate the temple. So whether you're dedicating a building, you're dedicating a temple, you're dedicating certain people, certain tribes, when you're dedicating something, that's the Hebrew word that's being used. Here, it is translated train up, but I think it should have been translated dedicate. Dedicate that child to the way he should go. In other words, set aside, hedge him in, discipline him accordingly so that he understands the limitations of life. And if you teach him that properly, if you're a good parent, if you're an appropriate God-fearing parent, and you teach him those things, those are the things that aren't going to depart from him when he grows up because they've been instilled in him. That, I think, is what Solomon is driving at. So just because you have a kid who... Let's say you raise him in church and then he becomes an adult and he doesn't go to church. That does not negate what Solomon said here in the Proverbs. He was writing to you as the parent and telling you to do the proper work of parenting and to raise up your child in the way that he should go. And then when he's an adult and he has kids, he's going to remember all those lessons because then it's his job to drive the foolishness out of his children. Here, I'll check that theory. Charlie, how much smarter did your mom and dad get once you had kids? Well, they were very, uh, yeah, I feel like their wisdom just abounds. Yep. And when you, when you said spare the rods, spoil the child, that's, you know, the scripture is even more harsh than that. It's not just spoil, it's he who spares the rod hates his son. Yeah. So that's kind of, it's a... Uh, so we, in other words, we really love Charlie. We really love wow, him. did you love Charlie? You amazingly love Charlie. But I'm sure that when you were a child, just like the writer of Hebrews says, you hated the discipline. 
You rebel against it because foolishness is in your heart. But then you became a mom. You're about to give birth to your third child. Do you discipline the boys? I'm guessing yes. Yeah, we, we beat them. Yeah. And, <laughs> <laughs> because and, we love them. Right. <laughs> and where did you learn that discipline? From your parents. That's what Solomon's driving at. When they're older, they'll understand what you did. It won't depart from them. Verse 7 then, we have already looked at the rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. Verse 8 says, he who sows iniquity, he who sows sin, he's using that Agricultural terminology, whatever you plant, that's what's going to grow. So if you're sowing iniquity, iniquity is going to grow. So if you're actively creating, sowing, expecting iniquity, what you're going to reap when it grows is nothing but vanity. Now, you've seen Solomon use that word vanity several times in this book. He started right out with vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So he's talking about emptiness. The Hebrew word here can equally mean trouble. So what Solomon is saying is, if you're constantly planting iniquity, what are you going to get out of that? You're going to get trouble out of that. When it comes time to reap what you sow, you're going to get trouble out of that. It kind of goes back to what I was already saying, which is that it's just easier it's just the better path in life to do things God's way because there are all kinds of thors and briars and difficulties in the way of evil, in the way of perniciousness. But he who sows iniquity will reap vanity. Now, if you are a poor person and you are being enslaved to somebody who is rich, who has loaned to you, then you might very well be the person who is being referred to here, this may be a verse that Solomon is using to comfort the person who is under the dominion of someone who they owe, because he says that someone who sows iniquity is going to reap vanity and the rod of his fury will perish. And what that means is his anger, the way that he deals out his anger, isn't going to last forever. It's going to end. It's going to finish. So if you're sowing trouble, which I think in this instance, given the context, everything else has to do with if you're oppressing the poor, as a good example, if that's the way you're sowing iniquity, then all you're going to reap back is trouble. God's going to bring trouble into your life. That's the way that's going to work. But it is a comfort to the person who's being oppressed that the rod of the iniquitous person is going to ultimately perish his anger, his temper is eventually going to end. Verse 9, we've already looked at. He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. Verse 10. Verse 10, what good advice this is. Drive out the scoffer. We've seen Solomon use the word scoffer repeatedly. I think we know now what the scoffer is. 
The scoffer is the one who denies the things of God, who denies the wisdom of God or his word. He's the one who's the cynic. He's the one who's always at odds with righteousness and goodness. So what do you do? Do you keep him in your company? Do you keep him around? No, Solomon says, drive out the scoffer, and the end result of it is going to be, and your contentions are going to go away. And that's just true. If there's somebody in your midst who's constantly causing dissension, difficulty, trouble, if you drive him out, the trouble ends. The trouble goes with them. And so Solomon says, drive out the scoffer, and the contention will go out. And then he describes that contention. Even strife and dishonor will cease. Strife means arguing. Dishonor means probably in this context, talking bad about each other, reducing somebody's reputation, uh, gossiping about somebody else. That's all going to end when you drive out the scoffer. Now, by the way, that idea, if you would, Tom, look up Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, because that very same idea is carried into the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. He also says that when somebody acts as a scoffer, in Paul's case, he says somebody who is a schismatic, somebody who's causing dissension within the church. Here's Paul's advice. Read it for us, Tom. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Interesting that Paul would use that word, at least the English translation of that word, naive, because Solomon keeps talking about the naive. In verse 3, the naive go in where there's trouble, and they're ultimately punished for it. The one who is trying to cause dissension, in Paul's case, he's talking about within the church, the person who's trying to cause schisms within the church is going to look for those people who they can influence, the naive, the ones who they think don't know better. And then they're going to try to dissuade them from the proper doctrine, the proper biblical doctrine, the proper teaching of Christ. And usually the reason that they're doing that is to heap together followers for themselves so that they can create their own little schism. Paul says, mark those that cause dissension and then have nothing to do with them because they are going to cause dissension and the way to deal with it is not to keep them in the body of the church and keep trying to talk them into better behavior until the behavior changes, get rid of them. Solomon says, drive out the scoffer, and contention will go out with him. Even strife and dishonor will then cease. So it just seems the better part of wisdom, Old Testament or New Testament, that if you have a body of people who are in unity, especially if they're in unity around the word of God, if somebody comes into your midst in order to cause trouble, if somebody comes into your midst and is causing dissension, if somebody comes into your midst who is being cynical or scoffing, 
especially somebody who is going to take advantage of the naive, that the proper way to deal with them is to put them out. And I think that could, if I wanted to elaborate on that subject, it takes us all the way into church discipline. And the fact that it is correct then for the church, for the protection of the sheep, to drive out the wolves. So verse 11, he who loves purity of heart, he who really desires that his heart be separate from evil, he who loves the purity of heart and whose speech is gracious, whose speech is kind, is not derogatory, is not cynical, is not evil, is not tearing people down, is not gossiping. Solomon, who is the king, says that kind of person who loves purity of heart. So he loves justice. He loves to see the right things, the godly things come to fruition. Someone whose speech is kind and gracious. Well, then the king is his friend. So if you have to come before the king, who is the judge, and you're brought into court and you have to stand before the king, if you're going to argue your case from the standpoint of backbiting and evil and wickedness and cynicism, and well, then you're not the friend of the king. But if you come before the king and your speech is gracious speech, is kind speech, and if what you want is justice, if what you want is genuine purity of heart rather than deception, then you're the friend of the king. Verse 12, then, it's not enough to just be friend to the king, but then also if you want God to look on you, the eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge. In other words, God sees wisdom. God sees truth. God sees knowledge and and he looks on it he blesses it he's actively in favor of it but he overthrows the words of the treacherous man in other words the honest man the upright man speaking God's thoughts after him that man is going to see his words coming to fruition he's going to see his life going down that path of righteousness he's going to find himself having a good reputation he'll find himself being friend to the king even all of these good things will come to him because he follows after righteousness because God himself looks after righteousness and he sees those things and he's going to bring those things to preservation he's going to preserve knowledge But evil things, he's going to overthrow. Overthrow to such a degree that Peter says, ultimately, after he gets his church off the planet, after he finishes judging all mankind, he's going to burn up this earth. He's going to wipe away even the sin that remains in the planet. And then make a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And then a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven where there's going to be no sin. So God is ultimately going to overthrow the plans of the wicked. So if you know that your plans are ultimately going to be overthrown, your wicked words, your treacherous thoughts are ultimately going to come to nothing, then you genuinely are a fool to continue down that path. 
because your very life your words your plans are a denial of the sovereignty of God and that's what I keep calling banging your head against the brick wall of God's sovereignty it's just a dumb way to be but if you follow after the paths of righteousness if you follow after the words of God if you have an appropriate fear and reverence of God then God who sees the eyes of the Lord are going to see that as being how you are and he's going to preserve that knowledge in other words the knowledge of God is going to last the words of evil are going to perish verse 13 if anyone thinks that God doesn't have a sense of humor verse 13 is going to uh, get rid of that notion for you because this just is funny And by the way, it is okay once in a while to laugh, be amused, and enjoy the word of God. This is the same God who made ostriches. So it's okay to recognize that God has a sense of humor. And by the way, I only picked out ostriches because the Bible itself makes fun of ostriches in the book of Job. I mean, ostriches are funny. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I will be slain in the streets. And that's the whole proverb. What it appears to mean is the sluggard, who we've read about several times now in the book of Proverbs, who won't get up and go do the work, apparently he'd rather make excuses. And his excuses will even be ridiculous, absurd excuses. He'll even go so far as to say, I can't get up and leave my house and go do the work because there's a lion out there and I'll get eaten in the streets. So this is an example from Solomon of the absurdity, the extents to which sluggards will go to avoid work. I think that's what this proverb's about. And I find it funny. Verse 14 says, And and I find the contrast here jarring because we've just gone from a very funny proverb to the mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit. And then amazingly, the second half of that proverb says, he who is cursed of the Lord, he who is cursed by Yahweh will fall into that pit. So, To listen to an adulteress, to be persuaded by an adulteress, to engage in sin with the adulteress is more than just your corrupt will doing what your ego wants to do. Solomon is so convinced of the sovereignty of God, he says, if you fall for that, that is the very curse of God that God would allow you to get involved in that. Look over at chapter 23 for just a moment. Chapter 23, verse 27, Solomon picks up the same idea. He says, for a harlot is a deep pit, and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. The idea of a narrow well is if you fall down a well, you might be able to climb back out. But if it's a narrow well, 
it's going to pinch your arms down. It's going to pinch your legs together and there's no climbing out. You're stuck there. So Solomon says that a harlot is like a deep pit, so there's no getting out of it. And an adulterous woman is like a narrow well. You're stuck. So then back at chapter 22, verse 14, the mouth, the language, the speech of an adulterous woman is a deep pit. If you listen to her, if you let her entice you, if you engage her, remember what Solomon has been telling you. If you see the evil, go away. If you see the evil, hide yourself. But if you go to the adulterous woman and you allow yourself to be persuaded by her, to engage in sin, well, then you are in that deep pit And that is a curse from God. And that curse from God is for the purpose of instructing you. That curse from God is for the purpose of teaching you better than to do that. Because you have just, once again, banged your head against the brick wall of God's sovereignty, his unchangingness. And you know, he says, don't do this. And then sometimes you go, do it. I don't mean this particular sin. But sometimes you know in your own life that you're aware that God has said, don't do this. And then you go mess with it anyway. And then something bad happens to you. And that is the curse of God in allowing you the fact that you will do it and then be punished for doing it so that you're corrected from doing it the next time. He who is cursed of the Lord will fall into that deep pit and then verse 15 we've already read foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and the rod of discipline will remove it far from him especially says Charlie if he loves you he will love you with discipline verse 16 we've already read he who oppresses the poor to make much of himself or who gives to the rich only will only come to poverty And that brings us to verse 17, the beginning of the closing inclusio that is going to take up the whole rest of this section of the book of Proverbs. And it seems like a very good place for us to stop for two weeks. In two weeks, we will pick up at Solomon saying, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to knowledge because it's good for you. It's pleasant if you will keep them within you. So now that you've heard these things, now that you've learned these things, keep them with you. Let them guide your life because it's going to be better for you. It's going to be pleasant for you. It's going to be beneficial to you. It's going to be a blessing to you if you keep these things with you and walk accordingly and then Solomon's going to get into a whole series of do nots do not be like this do not be like this he's just going to keep saying don't do not be like this in other words I've already told you what to be like I've already told you to gain knowledge and look after wisdom I've already told you to follow the ways of God and now that I've told you don't be All these various ways he's going to spell out. Don't be like the evil people. Don't be like robbers. Don't be like liars. Don't. Don't do it. Got it?
So that seems like a good place to pick up in two weeks. I will say it again. We're not here next week. If you show up here, that's on you. That has nothing to do with me. I warned you. So don't show up here next week. If you do want to go to church next week, come up to Galatia. Any questions about what you heard tonight? Are you glad you were here? Marilyn just said, oh, it was good. So everybody's okay? No questions? All right. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.